I'm Nathan, and welcome to Stories with a Twang. Today's episode is called The Defiant Tombstone by Catherine Tucker Wyndham, from Jeffrey Introduces 13 More Southern Ghosts. Writing a will is not an easy task, not easy even for a learned lawyer, and Judge John Rowan chose his words carefully. He did not wish to be misunderstood. In no case is there to be erected a monument or placed over my grave a tombstone of any kind, the Kentucky lawyer wrote. In this sentiment I am emphatic and it must not be violated. When my venerable and beloved father and mother died, they, like the multitude in that day, were interred without tombstones. My children have been buried in the same way. Neither of them have a tombstone, nor will I. It would be cruel to their memory if I were. My father and mother were more entitled to distinction than I ever was. Besides, there is no distinction among the dead. Pride is an unfit associate of death and the grave. I therefore again forbid a monumental stone of any kind. He read what he had written, made a few minor corrections, and put the document in his desk drawer. Surely, he mused, my family will honor my wishes in this matter. Then he pushed aside morbid thoughts by asking out loud, I wonder who'll be playing cards at Duncan McLean's tavern tonight. I better go see. And he hurried from his law office up the steep slope and around to the stables at the rear of his home, Federal Hill, where a groom had his horse waiting. Not even so important a project as preparing his own will could keep Judge Rowan from the gambling tables long. In the excitement of cards, I find relief from painful reminiscences he once confessed to a close friend. Always, it seemed, tragedy had lurked at John Rowan's elbow. As a child in Pennsylvania, he had been so frail that his parents despaired his life. When it appeared that he would survive, his father decreed that John must be given a fine education since he would never be able to support himself by physical labor. Accordingly, soon after the American Revolution, William Rowan took young John to Bardstown, Kentucky and enrolled him in Dr. James Priestley's school there. John was a brilliant scholar, particularly in the classics, and he became so proficient in Latin that he could converse in that language as readily as he could in English, an accomplishment which in later life was to involve him in a duel. His scholastic brilliance also marked his study of law at Lexington, Kentucky, and by 1795 he had come to the bar in Bardstown. During the early phase of his law practice, Rowan was appointed prosecuting attorney, a prized position for beginners, but this appointment was also destined to bring him unhappiness. In one of his first appearances in court, he prosecuted a young man on a felony charge, and the man was convicted and imprisoned. The conviction troubled Rowan so deeply that he vowed never again to prosecute, but to become a defense attorney. He was almost, he later admitted, tempted to quit the practice of law altogether. Rowan found partial distraction from his disillusionment by supervising the building of his home on the 1,300-acre tract of land, 
which his father-in-law, William Lytle, had deeded to his wife, Anne Lytle Rowan, and to him in 1794. The home was patterned after Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and Thomas Jefferson is said to have been the architect. They named it Federal Hill. The house still stands today, as imposing and splendid as ever, but the thousands of tourists who visit it each year know it not as Federal Hill, but as my old Kentucky home, for it was here during a visit to his Rowan cousins in 1852 that Stephen Collins Foster wrote his famous song. Soon after the home was completed, it became a mecca for dignitaries of the early 1800s, Henry Clay, James K. Polk, General Lafayette, James Monroe, and others were entertained in its spacious rooms. Tragedy came to Federal Hill, too. It was here in February 1801 that an angry mob surged toward the house intent on punishing John Rowan for having killed Dr. James Chambers, a surgeon in a duel. Rowan escaped by dressing his servant in his cap and hat and sending him galloping off on Rowan's horse to decoy the vigilantes while Rowan himself slipped away and hid in nearby cliffs. The duel between the lawyer and the doctor had its beginning at a card game where the men argued over which of them could converse more learnedly in Latin. In the heated exchange of words, both Latin and English and a few old Anglo-Saxon, Rowan made degrading remarks about Dr. Chambers' wife, witnesses said, and the doctor demanded satisfaction on the field of honor. Later, Rowan regretted having spoken in an ungentlemanly way about a woman, and he made a public apology for his behavior, but Dr. Chambers still required that the duel be fought. For years after the event, Rowan relived the horror of firing that shot that killed the doctor and of having his fellow townsmen turn on him in fury. The memory of that duel may have been one of the reminiscences that gambling helped Rowan forget. Tragedy came again to Federal Hill on July 26, 1833, when four members of the Rowan family died of cholera. Captain William Lytle Rowan, the oldest son who had stopped at Federal Hill on his way to Washington, where he was to have been Secretary of State in President Andrew Jackson's cabinet. Mrs. Eliza Rowan, William's wife. Colonel Atkinson Hill Rowan, the second son who had just returned from Spain. And Miss Mary Jane Steele, John Rowan's granddaughter. Twenty-six of his servants had also died that day. It was a hard memory to erase. Despite the tragedies, John Rowan became a leader in the developing state of Kentucky. He served seven terms in the legislature, was Secretary of State in Kentucky, was Chief Justice of the Kentucky Court of Appeals, and was elected to the United States Senate. Rowan had developed from a puny boy into a large, broad-shouldered man six feet one and one-half inches tall. He stood erect, but was slightly lame from a stagecoach accident at an infirmity which he resented. His legal acumen, his mastery of language, his addiction to gambling, his inflexible integrity, his proud patriotism, his political prowess, his skill as a duelist were all woven into the character of the man, Judge John Rowan. So, when he died, July 13, 1843, Many people felt that the instructions in his will should be ignored and that a fitting marker should be placed on his grave. 
Furthermore, his daughter maintained that she had received his verbal approval for marking the family's graves, including his. But his will was never amended to reflect this change of attitude, a rather unusual oversight, if indeed that is what it was, for a man trained in and dedicated to the legal profession. Perhaps his close friends speculated, Judge Rowan really wanted Federal Hill to be his memorial. The massive house, they pointed out, was so close to his burial place that in the late afternoon, its long shadows almost reached out to touch the grave. Federal Hill, they said, is monument enough for any man. And they were uneasy somehow when talk continued of plans to erect a monument on the grave. In life, few men had dared defy John Rowan, and many of his former associates were fearful of violating his wishes, even after his death. Better do like Judge John says, servants on the place muttered. He may be dead, but he ain't helpless. But despite reminders of the explicit instructions in Judge Rowan's will, and despite warnings that he, even in death, might not react kindly to having his orders ignored, Plans were completed for erecting an imposing marker at his grave. There is no record of the date the heavy shaft was set in place, nor is there any account of ceremonies attendant upon the event. Even the name of the stonecutter who carved on the face of the marker a listing of John Rowan's public achievements and an assessment on his personal character has been forgotten. Nonetheless, the story persists that shortly after the memorial had been placed in the small graveyard, it toppled to the ground. Members of the family did not wish to have a fresh flurry of talk about the controversial marker, so they hastily summoned stonemasons to replace it before accounts of its mysterious fall spread through the town. These craftsmen long experienced in fostering man's effort to prolong his earthly ties with chiseled words on cold stone had no explanation for the collapse of the column. They talked vaguely of the ground settling and of tree roots undermining the foundations, but even they appeared unconvinced by such theories. They, the stonemasons, worked rapidly with hoists and levels and mortar to set the stone shaft firmly in place again. Once the marker was solidly upright, the workmen gathered up their tools and walked rapidly away from the scene as if they half expected to hear behind them the dull thud of heavy stone tumbling to earth. The silence was reassuring and welcome. Several weeks or possibly months later, however, the stonemasons received word that their services were required again at the Rowan Cemetery. Judge Rowan's marker had fallen from its base. Some of the men refused to return to the cemetery. Judge Rowan said he didn't want a marker on his grave, and it looks like he meant what he said, one of the men declared. Others shook their heads and said they wanted nothing to do with a tombstone that would not stay put. The workers who did go back to the graveyard were even more puzzled by the second toppling of Judge Rowan's stone than they had been when it had first happened. There's no reason. No logical reason for that monument to fall. They agreed. And though they did not say so out loud, they also agreed that old Judge John Rowan likely had something to do with the strange occurrence. Judge Rowan genuinely meant what he said. And he had said, 
I forbid a monumental stone of any kind. All right, everyone, that's it for this week's episode. If you would like to learn more about Catherine Tucker Wyndham, you can head on over to ktwyndham.weebly.com. I would also like to let y'all know that this will be the last of weekly releases. I've decided to move to an every other week release to focus more on the podcast and be able to get quality work out to you. I hope you're all not disappointed. I promise it'll be worth the wait. If you have any stories you would like me to read on the show, you can send them on over to storieswithatwang at gmail.com. The show is on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Stories with a Twang Podcast. It would mean an awful lot if you could rate and review the show wherever you listen, and don't forget to share with your friends and family as well. It could really help the show grow. I hope you all have a wonderful week, and until next time, remember that a little twang goes a long way.